Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. CNG here joins him. And we've got another podcast for you. Uh, this time, we're going to be talking about storytelling in video games. Now, you might remember uh, if you've looked at, uh, I think it's podcast number three. Yeah, podcast three. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit, but... Well, um, not us. You, oh, yeah. You and Dragon Coder did. That's right. Cientier's not Dragon Coder. I'm not. <laughs> Last I checked, anyway. I don't know. He might be a shapeshifter. You guys got to keep an eye on him, even though you can't see him. <laughs> Either case, last time it was more about kind of the what of storytelling, and also we didn't really have as much preparation. So we were planning to uh, hit this again, and uh, we're going to try and this time go at it at a slightly different angle. Yeah, so there's there's been some time put into preparing this one, uh, so it's not just trying to figure stuff out on the fly. That was, I think, uh, one of the downsides of the earlier casts, is we did a lot of trying to figure stuff out on the fly. So... We're really wanting to focus today on a lot of what I'm referring to as like the tools of storytelling in games. They're an interesting medium because they do allow for a very wide variety of storytelling experiences. But there's, I kind of think, a bit of a more narrow band of actual tools that are used to do this. And when I say tool, I think it'll become kind of apparent, the sort of thing I'm talking about as we go through them. But I'm referring to something that can be used to tell part of the story. So it's it's a technique of telling it. So it's a, a tool of storytelling. Right. So let's try and get into this one. Yeah, let's jump right in. One of our first methodologies, and this is something that a lot of gamers should be fairly familiar with. Really, most of these you'll recognize, I think. Uh, this first one is cutscenes. Basically, the idea is you're playing through the game, you're doing some stuff, and then play stops. And uh, a little cinema plays with either the characters that are on screen or a new thing or something along those lines. But basically, the characters do stuff and act out a scene for you. Yeah, one of the big keys to my mind is that this is more or less non-interactive. Sometimes there's things like quick time events that are thrown in there, but yeah, you can almost argue to some extent that that becomes a different sort of thing than just a raw cutscene at that point. Yeah, that becomes more of a form of play than a, a cutscene, because if we counted those as cutscenes, then Heavy Rain wouldn't be a game. Um. <laughs> it would just be a movie with button prompts. But yeah, just that idea of here is a time when the player just kind of sit backs and watches the story happen. Mm -hmm. And they are not necessarily actively doing stuff as it's going on. There's no decision making or anything, which can contrast potentially with the next item, which is dialogue sequences. So in my mind, there's two kind of uh, forms of dialogue sequences. And when I was thinking about them, it kind of used circuit-like terminology for it. We'll get into more details, but first, there's sequential, which is the idea of dialogue sequence happens, dialogue sequence is over, normal gameplay resumes. So the dialogue sequence completely interrupts normal gameplay. Uh, and then there's parallel. And the idea here is a parallel dialogue sequence is one that occurs alongside gameplay. Yeah, so sequential dialogue, this is something that you see almost all the time. This is the more common one. Um, RPGs do this a lot. Yeah. Um, even a lot of action games will do this a lot. It's really parallel dialogue sequences are more of a recent development. Relatively speaking, yeah, because you have to enable a couple of things at once. And uh, one of the tricks with parallel dialogue is figuring out how, because the player's attention is split, yeah. right? So you have to figure out how to effectively have the dialogue, like you have to manage the, the level of engagement where the player is, where their attention is focused. Is it going to be focused more on the dialogue or focused more on what they're doing? Mm -hmm. Games like Uncharted have done this sort of parallel thing pretty well. Uh, we actually kind of did it 
it in Highway to the Moon because your game keeps playing while dialogue is going on. Yeah, a lot of uh, recent games that have tutorials in them, they'll actually have you doing actions while the characters are mm, commenting yeah, sure. on them. Like, you need to calibrate your eye things. I think it was in Halo. It was like, calibrate your vision. Okay, look up and down. You look up and down. Okay, yeah, that looks good. Let's keep going. Yep. There are definitely some benefits to it in terms of keeping action up. And and I want to take a a moment to note that I would include things like what's referred to as barks in here. Uh, A bark is a random line of dialogue that just kind of pops up. Uh, Usually it's spoken like in a lot of first person shooters. You'll hear something like, he's over there or whatever. It just adds a bit more. It adds a bit more life. Yeah. Life and reasoning to a thing. Because, Um, yeah, it's. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say I've seen text versions of it in like the the Dynasty Warrior style games, where it's like this random dialogue bubble will pop up in the corner of the screen or whatever. Yeah, just like some dudes like ow or help uh, all those things, and they add to the immersion, but they are still a part of the narrative in so much as they add to your why for playing. Yeah, I do want to to go back to sequential dialogues just to talk a little bit about some examples in a more concrete sense. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things, voice acting may or may not be a part of these. Yes. So it might be text or it might be voice acted. So something like Bioware, for example, a lot of their games, Mass Effect, Dragon Age, will have dialogue sequences where it plays out very much so like a traditional dialogue sequence. I mean, you have that that wheel for selecting choices, but yeah, it's you have the spoken dialogue, but it's still a dialogue sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so dialogue sequences may or may not have some amount of interaction i usually think of them as being fairly static when they're sequential yeah uh, because all of the focus is on processing the dialogue yeah the the interaction you would have with a sequential dialogue sequence is specifically kind of the yes no or um what are you going to say back to them those yeah sorts of things it's or or pushing the button to advance or whatever yeah it's the kind of interactions you would have in a visual novel which right. are basically choose your own adventure there there can be particularly with sequential dialogue sequences some a bit of um a blurred line between that and uh, cinematics yeah yeah but figuring out which one's which is kind of oh some of those there's like this gut feel of like how much does it feel like it's the game engine being co-opted into it and like how much of the focus is on the dialogue versus on other action that's happening or whatever one important thing that i would say on dialogue sequences specifically sequential dialogue sequences is that they are player pushed forward as opposed to being automatically pushed forward i think that's probably a good a good line to have like if you find that you have to press a to get to the next part or you have to do something to get to the next part of the dialogue it's probably a dialogue sequence um, as opposed to a cutscene where it starts and all you really have is the ability to pause it, possibly. Yeah, or bring up the skip prompt. Or save, if you're in Metal Gear. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Before we move on to the next one, just one final sort of note on dialogue. There is a difference in how text versus spoken is received, and there can be a lot of very interesting effects done to text, like drippy letters and interesting fonts, highlighting special phrases that you want the player to know. Yeah. That in particular is really hard to do with voice, but voice does allow you to be able to capture some additional inflection and tone and all of that sort of thing. And it's kind of the difference between listening to a podcast or reading a transcript of it or a written version. Yeah, uh, written text, uh, that sort of dialogue is better for expository stuff, just like giving information, I would mm, say. Mm-hmm. Whereas spoken word gives a lot more character, I feel. 
Yeah, it certainly can. Uh, anyway, that's kind of dialogue. And, and again, dialogue sequences, I kind of have two sub-things under it. The next sort of thing, I think we, we settled on dossiers for the term here, but blurb was kind of my original uh, word. And I just mentioned that because the idea here is it's kind of, uh, there's some amount of self-containedness to this. Yes, yes. The idea here is... Um, whereas the other two are ways of conveying your narrative or your story through events that the player is either watching or playing through. This is particularly conveying your information through basically logs or files or just lots of information that the player can look at at their leisure. Yeah. While the previous two were present tense, this one is very much so past tense, typically. Yeah. Um, the best example that I can give is Metroid Prime. Whenever you scan an enemy or you find a computer that you can scan, all of that information that you get, that's optional information about past events that you can read at your leisure to get an understanding of the implications. Yeah, other examples, in my mind, sort of the thing that I was thinking of here when I was first thinking about what are ways this sort of thing is told are the uh, item descriptions in Dark Souls games. Yeah, yeah. Right, where when you look at an item, you can read on it a description, and it'll tell you some about the world. That's the way that they do lore building mm -hmm. uh, in that game. And I feel that dossiers are often used more for, like, world-building purposes than actually telling part of the story. They're about giving the story context. Yeah, because one of the things about dossiers is that it's completely up to the player to decide whether or not they want to read them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another example that I think of are things like the books in Skyrim. Yeah. Or Elder Scrolls games in general, I suppose, probably have books. But uh, it gives you this opportunity to see into the world. And it's very interesting because it's a way of doing world-building that's in-world. Yeah, and that's one of the other things about dossiers is that they don't necessarily have to be in that library that's off to the side that you can, you know, look up and then dig through to find your information. This can be on items that you're just getting throughout the game. Like, as you said, with Dark Souls, every item in the game has an item description on it. Yeah, or things where you might pick up a note that somebody left on a tabletop, right? It's got, here's what my thinking was when I did this thing that you're like, oh, now all of these things that I've been playing in this game make a lot more sense. Yeah, Resident, things like that. Resident Evil, the earlier Resident Evil games did this a ton, actually. Just all sorts of notes from researchers or people who eventually turned into zombies. If you're paying attention as a player, you'll actually know some of the zombies were those people, the things that you end up actually having to kill. Mm. Uh, just a couple of other examples in Tomb Raider games, or at least Tomb Raider 2013, I think it was, mm -hmm. when they started doing the reboot. You could pick up relics, and these would have descriptions. Middle Earth, Shadow of Mordor, there's also things that you can find that have descriptions on them. All of these sorts of little world-building things that, you know, they're not important to knowing what's going on in the story, but they give nice world-building or context. Uh, that kind of fits into this category of dossiers. Yeah. And uh, moving on to our next one. Yeah, this begins kind of almost more of the observational aspect of storytelling, and it's this concept of environmental details. So this has to do with what's done in the environment, uh, where the player is playing, things like the art, the level design. You can include things like what sort of palette choices are being made and stuff like that here as well, and sort of how the world's put together. For example, a broken castle or a castle wall that's been busted down that NPCs are repairing kind of in the background. It's not something that you're ever interacting with, but gives you a feeling for what's going on and it helps build the impact of the narrative. This is an interesting part because 
the first thing that an environmental detail grants you is it can grant you the tone of your story, it can grant you the feeling, the overall ideas of what's happening. But it can also, if done correctly, it will grant you more of a feeling of the implications of your actions. Because it's things like when you were here before, uh, let's say Dark Souls, for instance, there's a firekeeper that hangs out at the first... Uh, oh, yeah. In Dark Souls 1 at Firelink Shrine, there's a firekeeper that's basically down some stairs just right next to Firelink. Yeah, and she's just kind of there. Well, eventually, after doing things for a while, she'll be gone. Well, specifically, she'll be dead, and you'll pick up remains that are like, oh, somebody murdered her. Yeah. Go and get revenge. So this is actually a combination of, uh, well, there's a little bit of a combination between dossier and environmental details, but the first thing is the detail that she's not there anymore. Yeah. Well, and you can also pick up an additional detail of an NPC that was sitting across from her. It's also gone. Yeah. And um, the thing here is that a lot of the storytelling here is inferred data. It's you look there and she's gone. You're like, oh, she's gone. Where is she? Well, there's her soul. Oh, dear. Somebody killed her. And then there was that dude over there and he said something really suspicious, suspicious last time. Uh, I first ran into him in a prison cell. Hmm. Yeah, and so these are more subtle details. And I mean, there are more bombastic ones, like I think to Tales of... Why am I blanking on the name now? GameCube Tales. Uh, Symphonia. Yes, Symphonia. So Tales of Symphonia, there's a town... That's ruined? Yeah. Like, the first time you go there, the kids are running around doing stuff. It's really bright and everything. And later on, a big thing happens, and the town is destroyed. And if you go there, it is still destroyed. Yeah, but then you can give money and see it get repaired. Uh, it also makes me think a little bit of Majora's Mask, where when you beat one of the bosses, the world changes to show, oh yeah, you did a big thing that mattered, and beating that boss had a huge significance. Or I think in Ocarina of Time, even, uh, mm -hmm. when you beat the water temple yeah uh, the, the lake filled back up yeah and these are details that if you're not really paying attention as a designer you might forget to put these in there because you're like well the player had their victory okay cool yeah speaking of forgetting details i want to talk about an example of why this sort of thing is really important mm -hmm. guild wars factions so this was the second campaign uh, of guild wars one i will probably get into the model they used much later in terms of selling the games yeah yeah but in guild wars factions it was called that because the idea was you had the, these two factions, the Luxons and the Kurziks, and of course they had derogatory slang for each other because mm -hmm. a lot of the focus was on this PvP interaction, this concept of alliance battles. So you could see on the map where the line had been pushed based upon the, the PvP battles that were going on, and unfortunately they ruined them between uh, the pre... they basically had a, a weekend where you got to play the game early and they were able to stress test everything mm -hmm. and they had alliance battles then and then they released the game and they ruined them. But, uh, or at least <laughs> in my opinion they did. <laughs> but um, you You'd fight in these things, and it would push this line back and forth. Whoever controlled more territory would control towns, and you could have guilds that did a lot of fighting in these battles that would get perks for owning towns, like uh, discount merchants and stuff like that, their name on, on the town. And then you look at the game world, and you're like, I don't feel this conflict between the Kurziks and Luxons at all. Their areas are super segregated. There's no route between them. Think of it kind of like two bananas laying curved sides away from each other. So you've got kind of like this ovoid of banana. Mm -hmm. And where the stems meet at the top, you've got an area. And where the, the bottom of the banana meets at the bottom, you've got an area of connection. But beyond those connection points... There's no connection between them. There's a couple of PvP zones that are in locked-in locations for some additional PvP. It's a, a bit more casual. But 
you can't just like, oh, here's where the front of the battle is. Here's the dividing line between the places. And on top of that, except for specific quests that would specifically be about this conflict, you didn't run into members of the opposing side fighting. That that line, it didn't mean anything in terms of what sort of enemies in the world you're interacting with. So this conflict was just not felt mm-hmm. by the average PvE-only player. Yeah, it was a thing of where when you really looked at it, you just didn't feel like there was a war happening. Yeah, you felt that the Kurziks were more focused on their battle with, say, the Wardens or the Dredge, and the Luxons were more focused on... I played more on the Kurzik side, so uh, I don't necessarily remember everything perfectly, but fighting random sea life? <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that is an important thing, though. These details, they're subtle and they're very easily missed, but those little things of saying there's a war going on, we need to actually make sure that the effects of this are happening, and that can be, you know, a ruined homes along the path of the war, or when you go to an area where it's right next to the border, you will actually see fighting. You see the friggin' front line. Like, you see this conflict happening. You're like, oh, well, this town used to be owned by this side, and this area used to be populated by our people. Now the enemy is here, and it's way more dangerous for me. Like, And not only that, but if they had made interactions where you could actually traverse from one side of the territory to the other that would do someday i'm going to have to do a series talking about the storytelling of guild wars one but that would have done a lot to help some of the issues that guild wars factions ran into a lot of players complain the map felt really small because you're kind of being cut off by a huge amount of it Mm -hmm. and again future podcast topic we haven't said that in a while but just making that conflict feel like it's actually happening Mm -hmm. and they didn't and i think that's a big failure of their environmental details aspect of storytelling and it's not an uncommon mistake there are plenty of games that have wars going on but just looking at it from how you play the game you really don't feel like there's a war happening. It's just when the game reminds you that there's a war and it says, the war's happening, it's really bad, cutscene, or, you know, the war is happening, or a char- you're in a sequential dialogue, character tells you, hey, that's a thing. Uh, there is a war happening. I'm telling you about it. Um, yeah, like that sort of thing, actually, you're right. It does happen a lot. Um, there's a number of reasons for it, but it just it, it is frustrating how often the game just claims war is going on and gives no evidence of it. Yeah, but admittedly, there's a lot of development time that would have to go into it, but it helps with immersion. It does. At any rate, speaking of immersion, we have one more aspect to go into. Yeah, and this is uh, character design and animations. So it includes things like weapons and armor designs as well. It's this idea that the way that characters are designed can tell you a lot about who that is, you know, how bulky they are, or tall, or lean, or whatever, but also the way that they hold themselves and move tells you an enormous amount about who they are. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll try not to get go on too much of a diatribe, but... You get a little bit of one. Yeah, they're one of the things that always annoys the crap out of me about, and I apologize to all of you actors out there who work really hard, but annoys me about some modern-day shows I see is I'll see the actors, and they're talking with a really good uh, intonation, and they've got their faces doing really good stuff, and then their body is just bleh. 
just standing there. And so while I should be feeling they're, um, let's say they're really angry, I should see them being tense. I should see them leaning in, leaning back, or I don't know, bending down a little bit, exaggerating it a little bit. Just standing there uh, at the camera is not going to convey enough. And this same concept can and should be applied to any character that you make in a game. Everything about them tells you who they are, and I would hazard that because of the fact that the player is playing the character, remember. So that means that you have less opportunities to actually just tell the player, this is who the character is. You have other characters react to the character, but there are less ways to just naturally make it feel like this character is such a way. This character is arrogant or this character is strong. The ways to do that are in how they carry themselves. Do they, do they have a heavy set walk? Do they move very deftly? Do they flick things around? Are they a show off? Um, all of these different aspects can be evoked through animation and also evoked through the design of the character themselves. Yeah, it makes me think, for example, of, say, Dante in Devil May Cry, if he's holding a kind of a more casual, relaxed pose where he's just not intimidated by anything. Yeah. And so you just see him, like, all the time. He just looks like he's super chill. Yeah. It's like, whatever. <laughs> Throw it at me. All of these demons are coming at him. It's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. All well, right, I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> and, and then you can have him run into something actually challenging and completely change how yeah. he's approaching it. Yeah. Where you can see him becoming more tense and concerned in just his animation. That's a way that you can do a detail of storytelling to convey how intimidating a boss is. It's, it's subtle, but it's going to be picked up unconsciously by a lot of people. Yeah, because... It's one of those things. Many subtleties can be eschewed away from by designers just by them thinking, well, nobody's going to catch that. And certainly, if you don't, if you don't make it noticeable, then they won't catch it. But players will appreciate those small details. I think some of the best examples of this is, uh, things like in fighting games, just the way a character stands says everything about who they are. Their idle stance and what things they do if you let them stand there for long enough will tell you a whole lot about the characters. Uh, I think of Ivy from uh, Soul Calibur 2 uh, and how she has this very upright stance. She doesn't have her guard raised, or rather it's a form of fool's guard is the guard that she's taking. Basically, sword is down at your side. You can swing with it in any way that you want, but it's a very confident stance. And she's kind of looking down on you. She's a little tall. Um, so she can do that. But that's still one of the things, as opposed to someone like Nightmare, who he's struggling with a bit of contamination. And so, of course, that's evoked in his body, of course, because he has this giant arm thing. But the giant arm also is carrying this huge heavy thing, and he has to, he has to hunch down and hold the weapon behind him as he moves towards you. And one of the other things is all of the weapon is behind him. He's dragging it behind him. He's dragging it with him and that still evokes some things about who he is yeah it conveys additional bits of of storytelling yeah so that's um the list mm -hmm. i don't know if it's exhaustive it seems pretty complete to me but uh it's always possible that somebody has figured out something else that i haven't and i'm absolutely open to any suggestions you have in the comments of stuff and also, I want to emphasize that these are tools for telling a story. Uh, and like any tool, you can use it well or poorly. And there's times where it's going to be appropriate. There's there's things that they any given one of these does a good job at doing. There's things that they're going to be bad at doing. 
Uh, for example, most of the time your environmental details are not going to be a very good way of trying to, to have two characters talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't make any sense, but I mean, it's, it's kind of emphasizing the point, right? Using an extreme example. Yeah. Um, be like some, that'd be some sort of art house challenge at that point. <laughs> yeah. Of like the characters gesticulating wildly at bits of the environment to try to convey a story, but that's using a combination of, uh, animations and, and environmental details. And yeah, uh, it could be kind of comical, but, uh, it's probably also going to use a cutscene. Yeah, most likely, probably. So, like, you can see how these things can work in concert with each other, and it's not just... You don't just do one. Yeah, you don't use them in isolation. They're going to work together to do stuff. So, and, and knowing about these, obviously, isn't going to allow you to tell a good story by in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, it's how you apply them and use them. So Most definitely. So that about wraps it up for part one of our talks about storytelling in video games. Yes, and... Uh, Part two is going to be coming next week, and that is where we're going to look at the sort of interesting concept of interactivity with uh, stories and games. Yeah, it's something that games in particular bring to storytelling, and it's one of the more fascinating facets of it. Yeah, kind of a, a special additional thing that, that video games bring. Mm -hmm. So keep it right here, folks. Well, you don't have to keep it right here for a whole week. I, I think you'd probably get bored, but... It, I mean, it's going to be its own own cast anyway. It's not going to suddenly appear at the end of this one. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we will be catching you later. Uh, this is Redcoat signing off. Cintier signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.